0: Good morning. For those of you who were here last night, I just thought Joe needed some more tests of his eyesight, so uh, <laughs> we just changed the, uh, the words around a little bit. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this part of your Word, as we get to see your hand at work. And so this morning, as we stop to reflect, as we stop to see your work, we ask that you would make yourself visible in our own lives, that we would recognise... And that we would act accordingly. Teach us, please, to have this wonderful heart of Peter and the Apostles. We must obey God rather than men. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, do you recognise the hand of God at work? Do you see it? Do you respond rightly to it? And We're working our way through the book of Acts. Many call the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. But I think we've seen already that really it should be called the Acts of the Risen Jesus, the Acts of God. God is at work, saving people, changing people, making disciples, maturing His people, transforming those who were once dead into livers those who live out the new resurrection life. As you work through the book of Acts, it might in some ways seem like a chronological record, right? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, I'm just going to, let me tell you about my vacation and we we arrived at the airport and at the airport we got the car and when we got the car, right? And they're just telling you all the things that happened. But we've seen already with the little summaries that get inserted, that there's a purpose to what we're being told. We're being shown God at work. And in today's chapter, I I had to scratch my head for a while trying to pull it all together, right? These seemingly disparate events. How is it that you pull it all together into one coherent whole? Well, what I want to show you is how it is that three different groups of people see God's hand and respond totally differently. Two of them really are a warning to us. And one, which we'll get to at the end, teaches us how to live. Now, before we go there, though, before we get to our three groups of people, I want to talk about a couple of dangers as we consider this idea of seeing God's hand at work. The first danger, the first problem that we might have in this conversation, is, I call it censorship, the problem of censorship. That is, that we have all sorts of pressures on us to not talk about God's work. It's nothing new, it's pressure that they faced. You might remember that's kind of where we ended last week, in chapter 4, verse 18, 418, this same group, this Sanhedrin, the rulers, called them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. Or by the end of our passage today, 540, chapter 540, after they called in the apostles, had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Now, that pressure is nothing new, it was there and it hasn't stopped, it's still there today. We feel that in all sorts of different ways, we feel public pressure to not speak about Jesus, right? whether it's in the media, uh, social media, you ever tried to make a post on social media about Jesus? Either you're going to get absolutely ignored by everybody or get a whole bunch of flame comments. At work, with your family, with your friendship circles, there are few subjects as taboo as Christianity, as Jesus and His Lordship, as His call on our lives. And in fact, the way our society is trending, it's not even just Jesus that is becoming taboo, but even Christian values. If you start talking about the sorts of things that Christians care about, you get shut down. The strength of the nuclear family and the dangers of de facto or multiple partners. The most dangerous person to a child is still the new partner of the mother. Sexual control, purity. I mean, you, you pick any number of topics. Abortion, I mean, these are the hot topics of the day, right? Let alone if we wanted to talk about justification or resurrection or eternity and hell, I mean, there's so many. There's explicit public pressure, right? Do not talk about these topics. If you try to, you get labelled, you get, you get insulted, you're an, you're an extremist, you're a hater, you're a bigot. How dare you talk about these things? Christianity is just excluded from the public sphere and that has its impact, right? It teaches us as individual Christians to stop talking about God, You see, censorship doesn't even just come from outside, we even end up in this strange sort of self-censorship. We stop talking about God's work with non-Christians, I mean, when was the last time that you had a conversation with somebody who isn't a follower of Jesus, where you told them about the things that God is doing? Can you think of the last time? and we stop talking to non-christians about it and do you know what starts to happen we we then stop talking to christians about what god is doing as well we just remove it from our vocabulary i mean when was the last time that you had a conversation with a christian about what god is doing it starts to leave our language We say, Bill became a Christian, instead of saying, God saved Bill. (laughs) I mean, just a strange little change and a turn, but it removes God from the picture, strangely. The Bible says, it's wonderful and true, but we stop saying, thus says the Lord, God says. We even end up in a form of spiritual censorship, where the only times that we ever consider God to be at work is in the supernatural, in the miraculous, in the irrational, right? When something happens and it's clearly spectacular or special, well, that was God at work. But we remove God from all the rest. Oh, you were sick and you got better. Well, that's nice. Was there medicine involved? Well, if there was medicine involved, it wasn't God, Oh, you got better and there was no medicine involved. Wow, that must have been God at work. And All of a sudden, God is gone out of most of life, such that most of us no longer even see God at work. In the good or even, dare I say it, in the bad. God at work in everything that happens. Oh, I mean, to be like Job. You remember Job? Devastated everything he had gone children dead, possessions lost, health gone and he sits there in ash and tears and he says, blessed be the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord has taken away. Now, if the first danger is censorship, right, and just removing, and I suspect that's most of our problem, by the way, at least in our circles. The second danger is, is kind of the opposite extreme end, and that is to over spiritualize everything. To say, God has done absolutely everything, right? I tied my shoelaces well today, God is at work in me, right? He's given me the strength and the power. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a silly example, isn't it? And of course, we do believe that God is sovereign and is at work in all things, so it's a little bit of a challenge, But it's different to spiritualizing our own experience, almost turning it into a sort of a superstition. I think one of the more common areas where this is seen is in people's decision making. God led me to this decision, we might say. God led me to be a doctor. God's hand was there so that I would become a lawyer, so that I could become an IT mogul or whatever it is. Right? God is at work, and God told me and moved me to to to, that I have to move house and go and live at Paradise Beach, wherever the place is. Right? That, That I have to go and date this gorgeous girl that I love, which is kind of strange. In those circumstances, God never seems to lead anybody to become a sewer inspector. In fact, I've ever known a couple of guys who said, oh no, I'm, I'm sure this is God's work, that this girl has come into my life. And I said, "But she's not a Christian. <laughs> oh no, no, but it has to be from God, because I love her so much. God never seems to be pushing people to hardship and suffering in those circumstances, right? God's hand at work always achieves exactly what it is that that person themselves already wanted. So, just be a little bit wary of both extremes. The censorship that removes God from all of life and the over spiritualizing that sees God at work in absolutely every moment, even when it clearly isn't God. Alright, so what is it that God is doing? Well, we've seen so far in Acts, what God is doing is bringing in this resurrection life, the, the new age of life in the Spirit. We've seen it in a whole bunch of summaries. Really quickly, come back to chapter 2 and verse 42. Chapter 2 and verse 42. All the way through Acts, these little summaries are just dotted along the way, reminding us of what's happening. 2.42, they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonders and signs were being performed through the Apostles. The believers were together. They held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property, distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favour of the people. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 32, come to the next little summary, chapter 4, verse 32. The entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Instead, they held everything in common. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Exactly the same summary as we had in chapter 2. With great power the apostles gave testimony to the resurrection. Grace was on them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, because they were all who owned, sold their land, brought the proceeds to the apostles, and they were distributed as each had need. Chapter five, verse forty two. The next little summary, I'm showing you the summaries very briefly. Chapter five, verse forty two. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And as we keep going into chapter 6 and verse 7, we'll see the Word of God spread. The disciples increased. A large group of priests became obedient to the faith. What is God at work in the world doing? I'll tell you what He's doing. He's making and maturing disciples. Finding people who are His enemies, making them His own, and then transforming them to live differently. Do you want to see what God is doing in the world? Look for that. Look for times and places and people that God takes out of darkness into new life and then transforms them to this incredible picture. Now, here's the first group of people I want to show you. Those who lie. They lie to God and they lie to others. They pretend that they're part of this wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. I mean, what a, what a life to live and yet their hearts aren't in it. Notice, uh, chapter 4, verse 36, um, Joseph skipped this bit last week. He's making a habit of it, isn't he? Just skipping bits. I'm not quite sure why he's doing that, but anyway, Joe, uh, maybe he was being kind to me this week. 4.36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, the son of encouragement, sold a field, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What a wonderful thing. I mean, what a witness, a testimony to God's hand at work. By nature, we are takers. In any given circumstance, most of us, by default, try and find how can I come out of this the best? What is it that I can get? What is in it for me? My two-year-old twins already do it. Right, they'll see the other one and they'll say, Ooh, I like what she's got. Hmm, I could have me some of that bluey book. Uh, but if I go and grab it and try and take it, she won't let me. Ooh, there's a little thing. I don't want that. But if I go and offer it to my sister, she might decide that she wants it. And then I can grab the bluey book and run. <laughs> this little process happens of, I want that for me. How am I going to get it? Whereas, what a testimony here, Joseph sees his belongings not as something to be used for his own advantage, but he sells it and gives everything for the good of others. Now, this isn't teaching us that church ought to be a commune. Where we all live hippie lives, where nobody owns their own things and everybody has shares in everything, right? Today I'm going to wear Joe's undies and tomorrow he'll go like. It's, it's, not, it's not that kind of thing, right? They had a vision that what they had been given was given by God for the good of others. That's what they understood, not that there's no longer any possession and we're all going to be communists. That's not what it's trying to teach. It's also not teaching, by the way, about giving your money to church. Because in contrast to Joseph, we then come to Ananias and Sapphira, that very famous couple, who agreed beforehand to to defraud, to lie. They sold their bit of property and instead of, as Joseph did, bringing it all to the church, they just kept a bunch of it, came to church and here's the problem, they then lied about how much they had sold it for. Oh yes, yes, here's all the money, look at us, aren't we so generous? How's the bank account going, love? (laughs) Interest rates are up, yeah! Again, not teaching about giving to church, that's not what this passage is about. It's got nothing to do with your money going into the bank of the church. It's got nothing to do with sell your property and give it to... It's got nothing to do with that. Here is a couple who lied was their property, it was their sale, they had no obligation whatsoever. They could have given none of it to the church and it would have been fine. That's okay, it was theirs, they didn't have to. The problem wasn't the giving, the problem was the lying. It's not a flattering story, is it, by the way? The Bible doesn't shy away from imperfect characters. This isn't a whitewashed history where everybody is glorious and every person in the church is a saint. It's part of the power of the Bible story. There's a real imperfect people. You see, have a look at chapter 5 and verse 3 with me. And Ananias Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and keep back part of the proceeds of the land. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it, after it was sold? Wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this? You haven't lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. This wasn't a slaying in the spirit, as some slightly strange churches practice today. He was just slain. There was no getting back up from that. You see, you could respond to the hand of God at work by pretending, by lying, by masking who you are and what you are doing. You can't lie to God. That's okay, don't don't worry that maybe you're going to do this By accident, unintentionally. I mean, they they conspired. They knew what they were doing. But it is very much worth stopping and taking stock. Do not pretend with God. Don't pretend to be more generous than you are, more godly or holy, more committed or giving, more Christian. Don't pretend. The lie that you tell, you may get away with it in the face of people. I mean, Peter clearly had supernatural insight. The people around you may not. But your lie before God will stand. Don't don't pretend to pray when you don't. Oh, I'll I'll be praying for you, I'll be praying for you. Maybe you haven't prayed in months, you're not going to be praying for them. Don't assure people that you're doing things that you're not. It's very easy to look good. It really is. It's very easy, especially in our modern life where we're more disconnected from each other than ever. It's very easy to look generous when really you're just doing the things that suit you. You're only doing them when they're convenient and that's it. Can I say this is especially a danger for ministers so can I ask that you'd please pray for Joe and for me? Because it's very easy, people assume that you're busy doing good. Yeah, often people will say to me, "Oh, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to bother you. You're so busy. You must have so many people you're looking after." There's just this assumption. You're a minister. You're you're doing good things all the time, and maybe we make that assumption of each other as well. I don't, I don't want to, you're so busy, you must be praying hard for so many people and you're such a big-hearted person, you must be visiting the sick and preparing meals for mums with new babies and, and going and mowing the lawns for the widows. And, oh, I don't want to write like you're doing so busy doing so much good and it's just so easy to go, oh, yeah. I know, it was so nice of you to assume that of me, isn't it? <laughs> I don't do any of those things. Don't pretend with God. And Ananias, Sapphira, they paid the penalty for it. Now look, it may well be that you don't drop dead for such a lie. Acts isn't always teaching us about how things will happen. But understand the seriousness of it. The resurrection life doesn't mean no consequences. It doesn't mean that we can now sin as much as we like without any sense that we are an affront to the Holy God. We are His children, living the transformed life. But you know what, here's the second group then. The second group isn't lying, they're not deceiving, they're not trying to present something that they're not. The second group is just outright opposed to God's work. It's not based on ignorance. I think often we might have an an idea that somebody who's particularly antagonistic to Christianity, it might be just because they're a bit ignorant, they don't really know what it's about. It's hard to imagine that anybody back then was ignorant. I mean, you see what happened in verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles such that, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, such that, verse 16, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You'd have to be a very strange individual, a hermit living in Jerusalem, to not be aware of what God was doing thousands upon thousands giving their lives to Christ. Hospitals emptying, entire wards, the doctors just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, well, they've all gone, they're all healed, I guess I go home, right? Like, there's no, you can't miss it, Miracles are happening. The public displays of power. This new age of wonder has entered into the world. And what was the response? Have a look at verse 17. The high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. What a weird response. Like, you, you Do read, you read in our papers, right? The pressures on the healthcare system and how our hospitals are overcrowded and little Johnny died because we didn't get enough beds. And those stories are in the papers all the time. These guys have just wiped that problem out completely with their healing. Unclean spirits gone. The power of the Word of God displayed like never before. Jealous. I tell you, a position to that work of God might come from all sorts of motives: greed, envy, hatred, fear, selfishness. I mean, jealousy. They wanted for themselves what they saw that Peter and the apostles had, and because they couldn't have it, they wanted to stop the others from having it too. I mean, even this miraculous jail rescue that happens, right, the story, you hear that as the story was read, in the middle of the night, just poof, they vanish out of the jail. Doors still locked, guards still standing there. Next thing you know, they're in the middle of the temple preaching again. Nobody even noticed. I mean, it's a comedy of errors. The leaders come into the courtroom, bring us the prisoners and they go like, oh well, let's go to the jail, they're still there, right? They're not like, what is going on? Somebody else comes in. "Um, Didn't you lock those guys up? Yes, where are they? Back out there preaching again. Let's go get them. But this time, let's ask them nicely because we're afraid of the people that they might stone us. And what do they say? Verse 28, 528. Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You ever want an example of gaslighting? There it is. You are guilty of this man's blood. I mean, remember who these guys are. They are named for us in chapter 4. Annas, Caiaphas. You can find their names in the Gospels. As the men who had Jesus killed. Well, no, it wasn't us, it was Pontius Pilate. We didn't kill him at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> Good politicians move, make someone else do your dirty work. But it was them. You are guilty. I, I can't even, what, what led them to this moment in time? To respond this way to the Gospel? To be able to sow? unmistakably see the hand of God at work and yet oppose it with all that you have. So sure of themselves that they didn't stop once to consider what it is that God is doing. Unable to see the good of God's hand. Unable to see their own need. I mean, their verdict about Jesus was that he was a blasphemer who deserved to be killed, completely ignoring God's verdict about Jesus, raised from the dead. Have you been opposing God's work? Now, good on you for being here, if that's you. Just this week, I was chatting with somebody who told me, my my, my missus would never walk into church. She's afraid God would just strike her down dead. Now, maybe you've felt that way in the past, and if that's true, well, good on you for being here. This is the place to be. If God brought you here today, then please, will you listen? Will Will you open your eyes and see the work that God did then, that He's still doing today? Change your verdict about Jesus. He isn't a blasphemer worthy of death. He is the author of life. You now, Gamaliel's words are so interesting, aren't they? 2,000 years ago, this wise man who, who wasn't a Christian. I mean, we, we've got records of Gamaliel in history from other parts other than the Bible, right? He, he was known for his, his wisdom. We say verse 38... In the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. If this, plan, uh, if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. That was 2,000 years ago. Has it failed? Still going pretty good, actually. At at what point do you say that the test has concluded? At what point do you say, okay, I guess it's not going to fail, it's not of human origin, it must be of God. Don't be found to be fighting against God. But there's a third group, isn't there? The followers of Jesus. And because of the first two groups, the liars and the opposers, it may well mean coming up against opposition. Verse 40, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them again not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. And the apostles all went huddled in a corner and had a bit of a cry. Now, verse 41, they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, this is the craziest word in the whole chapter, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Gee, that's a foreign idea to us, isn't it? We run away at the thought of being uncomfortable, let alone persecuted. But they might call me bad names. They might think poorly of me. They might not want to be my friend anymore. They might not send me a Christmas card. I couldn't possibly tell them about Jesus. They rejoiced that they were worthy. It's like, I've I've got to get in their face until they persecute me. Until they've persecuted me, I've not gotten in their face enough. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from verse 29. What a wonderful verse. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. I mean, you want to make a motto for your life, there it is. You ever going to make yourself a coat of arms with an insignia in Latin or whatever, just make it that. Obey God rather than people. What freedom it brings. No human power can overcome you. There is nothing that they can do that we fear, for we obey God. But mind you, it will come at great cost. If you adopted this as your model, it will come at great cost. For them, it was persecution. For us, I wonder if instead of persecution, it will mean sacrifice. If we took this seriously, it would mean significant sacrifice. Obey God. To do what? Well, to do exactly what Peter did in verses 30 to 32. To witness the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and saviour to give repentance to Israel, forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. (laughs) what would happen if you wrote that down on little palm cards and made it your mission to speak those words to a non-christian this week jesus was murdered by jewish leaders they hung him on a tree but then god raised him his right hand as ruler and savior to give you repentance and forgiveness from your sins. And interesting, as to give repentance. Again, it's God's work. Even salvation is God's work. And so those who obey are people of prayer. Those who obey are people of joy. Those who obey are people dedicated to our part. Do you recognise the hand of God at work? Do you see Him working in you to mature His disciples, to transform your life into the life of the Spirit? Do you see it in the lives of those around you, to change them, even as we witness about Jesus? I mean, it's such a joy when you get to see someone become a Christian. That really is, I think, the ultimate joy in this life. But you know what's also wonderful is to see God keep changing his people. To see somebody who last year was still really pretty selfish and this year is now giving of themselves. To see the person who three years ago was wandering completely immaturely as a Christian and now is leading and serving and giving and what a tremendous thing to see. Do you recognise The hand of god at work i'll tell you what i wonder if this isn't a challenge for us as church finishes and you walk out the door today have a conversation with a christian about what you have seen god do lately let's start there that god might use us to then boldly witness to the rest of his world let's pray our heavenly father we thank you for these examples the warnings and the encouragement. Please would you teach us to fear you and to obey you and not people. To not be liars and pretenders. To not be in opposition. But instead to be dedicated, to be devoted, just like they were, to the witness of the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray.